0: Faded? Cut to Exterior Interior Restaurant Bar Club Day Night Guys, what's going on? Yo, yo, yo. This is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs, as well as talk about the screenwriting process and the importance of the fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs in all of TV and film. My name is Monis Rose, and I am your host with the most. This is part two of the podcast with Phil Rosenthal. For those of you, If this is your first time listening to Phil Rosenthal Podcast, or if you don't even know who Phil Rosenthal is, he created a little show called Everybody Loves Raymond, and he hosts a food and travel show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil. On this episode, Phil actually goes deep. Yep. And Phil discusses his favorite spots in Los Angeles and what he's eating at the Barone family. Without any further ado, This is part two of the podcast with Phil Rosenthal. Enjoy. Oh, you really embrace children. You have such a great time in every city. And what do the children teach you about
1: eating? I love the kids. I I have two kids. I, I am, I think, part of me never grew up. There's so many people who are sending me pictures and videos of their children watching the show. I didn't intend this to be family entertainment. I certainly just was doing the best food and travel show that I thought I could do. And I thought I was appealing to people like me. Well it turns out people like me, a lot of them are kids. And they're sending me videos of children imitating me. It's hilarious. Sometimes I post them, you can see them. but. They're wonderful, and I don't know, I just, what do you have to say about kids? I don't have to sit here and sell you on how great kids can be, right? Are they more open-minded eaters than adults? No, no, they're not, no. There's a lot of kids who won't touch certain foods. They won't try anything. But what I'm hearing from parents and even the kids themselves is that they watch me do it, maybe with some hesitancy, and then they see that I turn out okay, and so they want to try it. Or they see me get excited about something that they never thought about trying and then they are okay with trying it. Now, I'm not consciously doing this, sending this message. I'm really not. When you see me excited about the food, I'm just excited about the food. It looks great to me, and I wanna try it, and when it's delicious, I do my happy dance or whatever I do, and it's genuine. There's no acting on the show. Somebody said, in fact, it was a note from Netflix, said, Phil seems to like everything. And I said, yes, I like everything that I put in the show. I'm not showing you the times when I go, that was all right, because I'm trying to get you to travel. So why would I show you just the okay stuff or even the stuff that I don't like, unless it's hilarious? Mainly, I'm using the, sh- the food in the show to get you to travel. It's really a show about connecting to people disguised as a food and travel show with humor, because the people is what I'm getting to, the kids, the old people. People my age, I was going to say regular people, That's, nobody's regular, <laughs> I feel like I had to have a mission statement in my head. It can't just be, I go around and eat. That's not a show. That's a, an indulgence. And yes, I'm indulgent in the show. I do eat a lot, and it's a fantastic life to have to get to do this, but there is a deeper message. And it was never meant to be a political show, but all of a sudden today, maybe it is. The embracing of other cultures and other people from different places is suddenly, I'm going to be called a liberal for doing that, as opposed to just a regular person. A citizen of the world. Exactly right. So I think we're all citizens of the world, and it's very important for all of us to travel. First of all, just by being decent human beings, you become an ambassador of your country in a time when we desperately need a good one. So just by going and enjoying yourself and being decent, not going even out of your way to do something for other people, just by being pleasant and nice and having manners and being who you are, you are an important ambassador of America. Whenever I travel, say please and thank you,
0: or at least learn what please and thank you are in that language. You know, I learned in
1: Portuguese, "obrigado," And you see people, oh you made the effort to learn a word. If you're going to learn one word in another language when you go, I think thank you is the all-inclusive one. Because you can start by saying thank you. It's just a politeness. And nobody minds that you said thank you first. It's like, thank you, I'm about to take your time (laughs) and ask you something or try to make myself understood. Right? Yes, please is also very good. And hello and goodbye is also very good. But you don't have to be afraid to travel because, first of all, many, many people speak English. We're very lucky in that the rest of the world cares about learning English, but we should never take that for granted. The other thing is human beings can make themselves known through facial expression and hand signals, and people understand. The very basic things, you can point to your mouth and say food, and people know what you mean. You can indicate that you need a bathroom very easily, right? Or a place to sleep. So you can always make yourself known. So don't worry, people. Go. Because not only are you the ambassador, there's a selfish reason to travel. It makes your life better. There's no more mind-expanding thing in life that we can do than travel. I use food in the show because I know we're all, all, many of us, are food-obsessed. I am. When I plan a trip, I'm going, do they have good food there? That's my first question not going to a place if, it doesn't, if I can't eat because it's my favorite thing to do. So I plan out where I'm gonna eat, right? I leave room in the schedule for serendipity. I'm gonna find some places. The locals are gonna tell me. I'm gonna walk down the street and find stuff. It's gonna be fun. But if there are restaurants at a certain place that are, can't miss restaurants and you'd be an idiot to have been there and not to go, I'm gonna make a reservation because they're probably very popular. So I do that, but once I'm there, you gotta do something between meals so, I'm exploring the rest of the place. First time I ever traveled, I was in my early 20s. I had never been anywhere, r- literally nowhere. I think we went to Miami once when I was 12. Stopped at Disney World on the way back as it was being built <laughs> in 1972. Yes, that's how old I am. You don't look a day past 25 <laughs> on the radio. I'm 23 years old, I go to Europe on a very, very cheap flight, and my mind explodes. Couldn't believe the way other people lived in the world. For instance, you walk down the street, you try to go to a shop at 2 in the afternoon, it's closed. Well, everything's closed. What the hell kind of place is this? Like, I need something, it's closed from 2 to 4. Yes, these people are taking time out of the day to enjoy the day. What a novel concept. The siesta. Genius, I thought. And then I'm walking around, like, look how beautiful everything is. Look at these trees, look at the thing. But when I came home, I walked down the street with a new appreciation for what I had because I had something to compare it to. Look at this tree. They don't have this tree in Paris. We have it here. Now the tree in Paris is gorgeous, but this tree on my street in Washington Heights in Manhattan is also gorgeous. I have a beautiful street in its way and you have an appreciation for what you have because now you understand how what you have fits in to the rest of the world by comparison. When you just stay in one place, you just accept all of life as your little provincial world. Your little, maybe five mile radius. That's the world to you. And I don't mean just watching it on TV. I mean going. Because as nice as it is, people say they like watching my show where they feel like they've been there with me. You haven't. You've seen pictures. You've seen sounds and you've seen movies. And yes, it's a compliment to say You feel like you've been there, but you haven't been there. It's very, very different to feel the air, to see the whole thing. You know what's better than virtual reality?
0: Reality! Reality. How will the Barone family deal going to the places
1: you have on your show? Well, I'm going to approach it as a comedy writer. It's not always going to be easy and great. And Italian, meaning Italian because that's their heritage, so they felt comfortable there, right? Now, Ray, his character, didn't feel comfortable at first. He hated anything foreign. He hated anything outside of his little provincial experience. He was very comfortable, and so is actually the actor, the person. It took him years to convince him to do this episode in Italy. Yes, he didn't want to go. And I thought him not wanting to go should be what the episode is about, the character not wanting to go. And complaining when he gets there about how different stuff is. And then getting woke (laughs) to the magic of Italy, the food in Italy, the people in Italy traveling in general to understand that it's the most mind-expanding thing we can do and to be changed by it. So, this happens to him in the show, because I wrote it that way, but then, even better, I saw it happen to the person. He loved the gelato, he loved the pizza, he loved, he got, you saw the person get it. The magic of sitting out on a piazza, the town square, at night, in the beautiful moonlight, and the weather, and eating delicious food and drinking delicious wine. (laughs) It will happen to you if you go. So I'd like to think that if the Barone family went to Tokyo, they would be first completely flummoxed by how different it is. And then slowly, just as I did in my show, you'll see me not get it at first. It's like being in a pinball machine. It's like 50 Times squares piled up on each other. That's what it feels like, it's chaos. And then within a day or so, I understood the meaning, the lesson of Tokyo, is that we can't control the outside world, but what we can control, we make as perfect and beautiful as possible. And to me, that's the Japanese culture. If you go, for instance, to a pharmacy and you order a pack of gum, you buy a pack of gum, they wrap it for you as if it's for your 100th birthday. They make it perfect. There are more parks in Tokyo, than anywhere else on earth. Yes, there are these crazy intersections, but then there are these islands of tranquility all throughout the city.
0: If you were writing, say, and everybody loves Raymond and they go to Tokyo, that it's such an international city, you know, that actually, from even my experiences, the American food in Tokyo is even better than America of how great and
1: international it is. They have a, a way of obsession and perfection that makes things perfect. You know, when, if you've had great sushi from a master, how perfect it can be, right? How was the food
0: in the writer's room of Everybody Loves Raymond?
1: The best in the world. Really? Yeah. It was very, very important to me. The army travels on its stomach, and I thought a great way to build a family is by having good food, not just in the writer's room, but on the set as well. It's called craft service when you're on the set shooting a movie or a TV show craft service means the food that's available for the people who work there. And what happens is there's downtime while they're setting up a shot and people kind of gravitate towards this table of snacks. But if it's not just uh, sugar and salt, if it's not just chips and M&Ms, if it's something Special you then make the people who work there feel special because it's not just that you're paying them a living wage Which you should it's not just that the work is good Which it should be and it's not just that you're nice Which you should be this extra step what I mean is like sometimes you fly in Delhi from New York or cinnamon buns from Ann Sathers in Chicago or have a great in and out food truck backstage on when we're shooting at night Something that makes people happy. It's that simple and if you and I come to the craft service table on the first day and we don't know each other and there's something special there, I might turn to you and go, wow, can you believe this? And right away we're connecting and we're talking about something nice in our day. This is how you make a family. Food is the great connector. Say you ran
0: your, a future writer's room, okay? Would the food
1: change from your experiences around the world? I got to be honest. I was always into this. I was always looking for the best food we could possibly have at lunch. We had a board, and on the boards were our stories for the television show in various forms, how far we've gotten, what level we're at, the first draft, the second draft, the outline, whatever it is. That takes up most of the wall. But this part of the wall over here on this side, the restaurants that deliver, the restaurants that are close, the restaurants that we can send out for takeout, the list of the best ones, and adding to it, oh, here's one we got to try. Because every day you're there every day. So every day is an opportunity to eat something good. (laughs) You went from
0: scripted to unscripted. Yeah. Any advice for writers who are hoping to have a varied
1: career and not be pigeonholed? You do it. I don't know what else to say you make it happen. Now, is it easy to reinvent yourself or do something that you're not famous for when, you're, when you've had success? Everyone, of course, wants me to do another sitcom. And it's not like I didn't try after Raymond. I found that the business had changed. The type of entertainment that Raymond was, the type of humor, wasn't really valued anymore. And I didn't really want to capitulate and do the kinds of shows that I was seeing. I'm just not that type of writer. And so I knocked my head against this wall for A good 10 years after Raymond, I wasn't suffering because I had the success of Raymond. So I guess you could say I was set. I didn't have to worry, but I still wanted to do what I do. Everybody wants to feel useful and I love doing it. But I certainly never wanted to compromise myself to such a point where I didn't feel comfortable. And so I didn't. So in the back of my mind was this thing. And it stemmed from doing that episode of Raymond where I saw Ray, the person, change. And since then, that was the year 2000 we filmed that episode. I had in the back of my mind, it was so much fun to turn my friend onto this thing I love. I think that's why maybe you do what you do. You want to turn people on to something you love. I think all of us do this. So after getting sick of the business, of show business, which, by the way, the business in show business is the part that gets in the way of the show, <laughs> I started trying to do this. Tried in different little iterations. I learned what not to do. Took years and years and years. Nothing happens overnight. But if you ask me, was it worth spending that chunk of my life in pursuit of this, I would tell you yes. Because now I'm happy. This show combines everything I know about how to make a show, how to tell a story, how to work in the television medium. This I've learned over the years, 30 years in the business. But what is the topic of the show? What is the show about? Everything I love in life, family, friends, travel, food, laughs. So you could say that this little show is the pinnacle of my stupid existence here. Because it's the pinnacle of everything I've learned combined with everything I love. And I'm working with people I love, including family members, right? You see my parents in the show. My son's been a camera assistant on the show. My brother's a producer on the show. I wish this for everybody. Doing what you love with people you love. What advice would you give to an emerging writer? You got to keep writing. Just typing 40 pages of a sitcom script doesn't mean you've written a good sitcom script. So you have to keep at it. That's what separates you know, the men from the boys, as they say, or the women from the girls. What about advice an emerging writer should ignore? Here's the best advice I ever got. It was from an old showrunner who said to me, as I think I was writing the Raymond pilot, I asked for advice. He said, do the show you want to do, because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. If they're going to cancel it anyway, if you take all their notes, if you change it so much, and they're going to cancel it anyway... You don't even have a script that you could show people that you're proud of, that represents you, right? You could be noted to death. You could compromise yourself so much that you don't even want to see the show you're making, let alone make it. I've been there. I, I can honestly tell you I've never done anything for money. By never do anything for money, I mean, once I had enough to live, like I, I, my first job on television certainly wasn't on a good show. It was a very silly show, but I had to crack into the business. So yes, there are things we do when we're young for money. In other words, once I had an apartment and I was living, after that, it wasn't about money anymore. So I never like, oh, I'll make millions of dollars if I just sell my soul over here and do it. No, I, c- I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. In fact, I quit Raymond twice before it got on the air because I, didn't, I didn't, wouldn't capitulate. I wouldn't compromise. Yes, it's true. Yeah. What do you look for when...
0: Staffing a writer's room, or who do you look for? Do you look for someone who has had this amazing say life experience and has seen say life around the world? Like what or is it mainly just say on talent?
1: For a sitcom and for the food and travel show, you're looking for the same thing, even though they're they're different requirements, right? So what I mean is, yes, I'm gonna read a lot of scripts for the sitcom and make sure that these people have at least the sensibility that I think is either funny or brilliant or you know, something I relate to or something that I value. But after that, I want to make sure you're not an ex-murderer. So I have to meet you. I have to talk to you. I have to see that you're okay. I have to, because I have to live with you. I have to be in that room with you. And so does everybody else. You can have one poison person in a room can ruin the whole thing. It's true. And I certainly hate firing anyone. But once in a great while, it happens. You have to. Not everybody works out. That's just how it is. I'm sure I'm not right for many situations too, by the way. Ask my wife. The getting alongness is essential. And when we're looking for the sidekicks, for somebody feed Phil, we're looking for people that I feel a connection to, that I feel like I'd like to spend time with. That's it. So yes, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the connection. Usually what I find is if you have a sense of humor, we're going to get along great. That's all. That to me is our most underrated value. I think it's how we pick our friends. I really do. And our significant others. Absolutely right. Because I'm an old married guy and I can tell you that a lot of other things fall away. You're left with this sense of humor. As long as you have that, you're going to get through life okay.
0: Was there a moment in L.A. where you're like, oh my gosh, L.A. is the
1: food city? It happened slowly. I have to say there wasn't like a defining moment. I guess there have been landmark moments Like, I think when Mozza opened, that seemed to be like a a peak moment. And now it's a a triplex of restaurants on the corner of Highland and Melrose. Chiesbacca is a Tuscan grill. It's very casual. Everything is cooked over fire. You can get a giant Bistecca Fiorentina, which is the Florentine steak, which is one of the best steaks in the world. And it's at Chiesbacca. They also do a a wonderful steak next door at the Osteria Mozza, which is the formal restaurant where you get all these wonderful appetizers, pastas, entrees, desserts. I, I honestly, I can't eat there too often because I overdo it every single time that I go because you have to have everything. If you're looking for a feast, that's where. And then the pizzeria is like the best pizza I ever had. What are you eating at the Barone family? From Marie? Yes. We made a big deal about her meatballs. I think I think you need the meatballs. But she's going to make everything she makes is going to be good. There was legend there. It had to be. It had to be. She had to be the best cook to have, to do the things, to get away with what she got away with in the family. You had to have a superpower. And that was hers. So you're not going to have a bad meal at Marie Barone's.
0: Phil, where can everyone find you besides, uh, I mean, you got your Netflix show. Anywhere else? Uh, If you want to follow
1: me on Twitter, I'm just Phil Rosenthal. I'm phil.rosenthal on Instagram. And I think official Phil Rosenthal on uh, Facebook. Excellent. Hey, thank you so much for doing
0: this, Phil. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, how about that, guys? Part two is done. It is over. Time is up. I loved it. I really want to thank Phil. It was the most enjoyable. It was one of the um, better, probably the top five, maybe even top three podcast guests we've had on. Yeah, so anyway... Check all of Phil's work out. Uh, just go on to IMDb. You know, Everybody Loves Raymond. Somebody Feed Phil. It's on Netflix. Check out all of his socials. He's inviting you. And as for me, my name is Monis Rose. You can listen to all of the episodes here on iTunes, as well as read in the literary written form. All the reviews on at www.restaurantfiction.com. Dot com, And in the meantime, the in-between time Keep it real, keep it fresh And always, keep it on the flip side Cut to Exterior Interior Restaurant Bar Club Day
1: Night.